Hemostasis Connect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Takeda. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution or the rest of the Hemostasis Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. Well, hello and welcome to this podcast series on women and bleeding disorders. And my name is Dr. Michelle Lavin. I'm a haematologist at the National Coagulation Centre at St. James's Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. And I'm really pleased and excited to be here today with Dr. Sarah O'Brien, a paediatric haematologist at the Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And today we're going to talk about bleeding disorders in women and girls. Thank you, Michelle. And I agree. I'm really excited to talk about this important topic today. And this really needs additional attention. This is really a historically underserved area. And I'm sure that Sarah would agree with me that there's lots and lots of women and girls out there who are experiencing bleeding symptoms, but don't actually have a diagnosis or have never even been considered for testing or referral to a haematologist. And what we'd like to do today is really try and address this and make everyone understand how important this issue is and how easily we can treat and manage these patients once they get diagnosed. So I think just to start, um, from my perspective, it's very important to be aware of women and girls being at risk of bleeding disorders because historically we've really focused on men. And if you talk about bleeding disorders to many general physicians, probably the first thing they'd mention is haemophilia. And they believe that that's only affecting men and that's the main bleeding disorder. Whereas, in fact, there's many other different types of bleeding disorders which can affect men and women equally. And because of the problems associated with heavy periods, women can actually be disproportionately affected. So it's really important that when these women and girls are coming into doctors and they may be coming into haematologists, but they also are more likely to be coming to their general or family doctors about heavy menstrual bleeding, ear, nose and throat doctors about heavy nosebleeds, or even into, um, you know, paediatricians with heavy bruising, that these symptoms are taken seriously and that we really ask about any other bleeding they may experience and consider earlier referral for testing for bleeding disorders. Because without a diagnosis, what we see, unfortunately, is that many women aren't diagnosed until maybe in their 30s. They may have had a lifelong history of iron deficiency, a lifelong history of intermittent um, anemia, heavy menstrual bleeding, and had their symptoms really downplayed, underestimated by both not only themselves and their families, but also by the doctors that they talk to. And that's certainly what I see as an adult um, haematologist treating adult patients. But Sarah, what's your perspective? I know you primarily treat children as a paediatric haematologist. How do you feel bleeding disorders impact on the quality of life for young girls and adolescents? I think what strikes me the most about my patients is how isolating reproductive bleeding can be. Many of these um, girls and teenagers think that they're the only one that has this problem and they're embarrassed about it. And they think nobody else in their class or at school is dealing with these struggles. So I think we are fortunate enough at my hospital to have a clinic that's dedicated to young women with reproductive bleeding that's staffed by myself and an adolescent medicine physician. 
And we hear all the time from our families that just the fact that this clinic existed was so enlightening to them because they realized they were not alone and that there are other young girls out there um, dealing with the same issues that they are. What we commonly hear from our patients is that they are embarrassed by their bleeding. They are very anxious at school because they're afraid that they might leak onto their clothes or have to go to the nurse's office or have their mom bring a change of clothes. And that can be very distracting throughout the day to be worried about that when they're having their menses. And probably the second thing I hear the most is the impact on their sports, having to miss practice or a game or, or again, being distracted during the activity because they're worried about their bleeding or just feeling like they're not performing their, their activities, whether it's theater or music or sports to their full capability because they're, they're struggling with menses and related symptoms like cramps. I would agree completely. And it's not just, um, you know, sometimes girls have to take time off school or off work because of pain but often these girls may not really have a huge problem with pain but just the heaviness of the flow is what's stopping them from participating fully in their social activities and in their school activities and in particular actually even recently this week I was speaking to a 18 year old who was telling me she needed to change her pads every hour because of the heaviness of her flow and that's another you know a key sign if somebody's changing their pads more frequently than every two hours if they're having a lot of problems with clots or flooding, if they're um, if it impairs their ability to participate in sports, school or impairs their quality of life or if they're bleeding longer than seven days, they're the kind of key questions we're looking for to tell us if somebody has heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, and I always actually ask people about what type of pads or tampons that they use um, to make sure that, you know, are they talking about really regularly changing small regular tampons? That's quite different to somebody who has to go every half hour, every hour to change a super plus tampon. So a really detailed menstrual history can be key in order to recognize these girls early on in life and then spare them if they get diagnosed early, they can have effective management throughout pregnancy and avoid postpartum hemorrhage. They can have effective management for surgery and stop post-surgical bleeding. So really early recognition of these girls has such a knock-on effect for the rest of their life. And obviously stop being iron deficient and anemic for the rest of their life and be able to be, you know, an active participant in sport, work, in life in general. It's hugely important. Yeah, I think that's um, to your earlier point, Michelle, about the delay in diagnosis, I cannot tell you how many times I'm seeing a young woman with heavy menstrual bleeding. And as we're sitting there, the mother is struck by the fact that, oh, wait, I also have these symptoms. And the mother has either just gotten a hysterectomy or is about to get a hysterectomy. And it, it just shows how many years women can sometimes struggle with these symptoms. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, these disorders tend to run in families. So you diagnose one person, but you don't just diagnose an individual. You actually can reach out to everyone in the family who has problematic bleeding and provide them with an answer for why their life has been so disrupted. So uh, I actually think it's great if if the if people are being recognized in the pediatric setting, because all too often they're in their mid 30s and maybe had one or two major catastrophic bleeds before somebody's considered that referral. And just like you, 
you. I, I see the moms and they say, well, my daughter is the exact same. And I say, I know, I, I, I know where they need to go. <laughs> they need to come in and get tested. So, you know, we can by reaching one individual person, we tend to reach so many other people in the family. But it's so important that it's not just bleeding disorders aren't just for boys that women bleed too. Um, and once we once people start appreciating that, I think that's key to trying to get early referral. Um, and I don't think any patient would ever be upset about getting a, an expert opinion and a referral and testing and being told that everything is actually OK. But I, I certainly know patients that are quite upset that they've gone to their doctor multiple times about bleeding and really been ignored or felt that their symptoms were overlooked or minimized and then later been diagnosed in life with a significant bleeding disorder. So I think if people have a concern or a question about a bleeding disorder, I would encourage early referral because no one will ever give out about being seen and assessed and told that everything is actually okay. So part of our job as hematologists, of course, is to ask about other bleeding symptoms. So when you're seeing a woman who's presenting with heavy menstrual bleeding, what are some of the other symptoms that you find frequently come up in the history? So I think it's a lot easier for adult hematologists to assess the situation because we often have um, women that have gone through a number of different challenges. So what we mean by a challenge in terms of bleeding is have they had any surgery? Have they had any dental extractions or teeth pulled? Have they had, um, you know, any babies so far? And deliveries, operations, dental extractions, they're all really good surgical, uh, good challenges to hemostasis. And if somebody has had bleeding with those episodes, that again increases the likelihood that they may have an underlying bleeding disorder. Easy bruising is quite a common symptom um, and many people may have that without a bleeding disorder. But if there's very large bruises or bruises that come up on their own or on unexposed sites, so not on their arms and legs, but on their torso, their upper thighs, you know, that would be more suggestive of a, an underlying bleeding disorder. Or if there's any family history of bleeding, if there's a similar pattern of bleeding in other family members, that's also a key symptom that we look for to see if there could be a, an increased risk of having a bleeding disorder. And in the paediatric setting, how do you feel that that differs in terms of diagnosis? I think just like you said, sometimes it's more challenging because they simply haven't had as many bleeding challenges. As you said, they're less likely to have had surgeries um, and childbirth. So I think we will often ask about loss of baby teeth and whether there was some excessive bleeding after that unusual bruising with immunizations. I always ask my teenage girls, many of them shave their legs. So I will ask them how long it takes for those shaving nicks to stop bleeding. I think on the pediatric and adolescent side, just even getting that menstrual history can be a little more challenging because girls are often embarrassed to talk about menstrual bleeding. And especially if they're there with their fathers, that can be more embarrassing for them. So I really try to take time at the beginning to just say that we're going to be talking a lot about menstrual bleeding. And I joke that I'm going to ask, you know, 100 questions about their bleeding and just try to get them more comfortable in the situation. And and what I always focus on when I'm teaching students or trainees about taking a menstrual history is that you can't just ask, are your periods heavy? That, that's not a fair question because a, a patient doesn't know what's normal or abnormal. So just like you mentioned before, I teach them to ask those specific questions about, are they bleeding more than seven days? Are they soaking more than four to five regular products a day? Are they passing large clots? And 
with the advent of all of these new menstrual products, your point is well taken that you have to find out exactly what they are using. Uh, more and more of my patients are actually using period underwear at school because of the challenges in getting to the bathroom as frequently as they need to. And so you have to kind of sort out how much blood is being lost um, when they're using those types of new products. And there's also obviously the menstrual cups as well, but they're even a little bit easier because they, uh, you know, it's how often you're emptying them and they usually have a kind of assigned collection volume. But, I, I you know, I, I think as you just as you said, it's about normalizing that conversation. And I think in society, we're really poor about talking about our periods and um, we don't explain or express concerns we have about our periods to each other or to our families and there's very much taboos still in place when you think and talk about heavy menstrual bleeding and we really need to overcome those and they can be particularly even more difficult if there is people from different cultural backgrounds or different religious backgrounds um, and it, it's often easier in the adult setting because people may attend on their own but like that when there's you know younger girls who may not be used to be talking about their periods and they're accompanied by their parents even with their mom they may be a, a little bit more nervous talking about it so I think it's really important that we as physicians just normalize that conversation and in the same way that we ask somebody about their vaccination history or if they've had any coughs or colds or have they been unwell over the last year how their periods are should be just part of that normal conversation and an expected question from your doctor. Michelle, I would say that when I think about my patient population, probably the most common complication I see with heavy menstrual bleeding is iron deficiency. Is that something you see frequently in your patients as well? And what's the best way you think to test for iron deficiency? Absolutely, Sarah. You know, the majority of our patients will be iron deficient on referral or have been iron deficient in the past. So it's important to recognize that iron deficiency can occur without anemia. So you can't just do an F a full blood count or a complete blood count and look at the haemoglobin. You should do a specific tests like a ferritin and iron studies to assess whether somebody's iron deficient. And it's important to recognize that your local lab may actually be including women who don't realize they're iron deficient in their reference range. So if you have a ferritin less than 15, that meets the WHO criteria for iron deficiency and should be treated. But in fact, if you're less than about 30 or 25, you're already overusing your iron and you're starting to consume your body stores. So you should really think about supplementation in those women and girls who are ferritins less than 30. And the the best way to supplement iron it is alternate day dosing. So you should use a specific iron supplement and give it every second day one tablet. And that means that you boost the gut absorption you don't induce too much of a, the regulatory hormone hepcidin that can reduce the amount of absorption from the gut. And people tend to improve their ferritin quicker over the shorter term. Do you find that the same in pediatrics? How are your reference ranges in your local hospital? Yes, our reference range actually goes all the way down to six, which I think just shows how many people out there have low ferritins. So I am frequently educating my colleagues about the fact that ferritin less than 15 is the definition of iron deficiency. And as you said, that iron deficiency alone, even if your hemoglobin is normal, is a medical condition and can cause symptoms such as fatigue, shortness of breath and headaches. I know the listeners can't see my face, but when you said a ferritin of six was considered normal, 
That's somewhat terrifying. So, you know, if you let somebody with a ferritin of, of six or 10 and their hemoglobin is normal, if you say they don't need treatment, well, they will become anemic over time. Like, you're, you know, so I don't understand why people are waiting for that kind of end stage symptom of iron deficiency to kick in to, for them to become anemic before you actually start to treat them, because it makes such a difference. So you feel really like you've, you've done a really good day's work with a very simple intervention. And I mean, there's lots of other treatments we think about for a bleeding disorder. But first of all, we, you know, the basic diagnostics that we perform, I think that's a, you know, it's important that people are aware of them, but they're not expected to perform them or to refer people for those tests. The hematology team will be happy to perform those diagnostics once people's referred. I, I don't know what are the routine coagulation tests in the in the US where you're based, Sarah, but in Ireland, it's a PT and an APT, so a prothrombin time and an activated partial thromboplastin time. And there seems to be this idea in the community that if they're normal, you don't have a bleeding disorder. And they are possibly the most insensitive test for a bleeding disorder. The majority of people with bleeding disorders will have a normal PT and a normal APT. And specialist testing is required to exclude a bleeding disorder. So never be comforted by seeing a normal PT and an APT. That definitely does not exclude a co uh, underlying coagulation disorder or a bleeding disorder. And in fact, you know, it's a really limited benefit in assessment of that. I completely agree. Most of my patients have a normal PT, PTT. In fact, the patients that are referred to me for an abnormal PT and PTT usually don't have a bleeding disorder. There was usually some lab error and they don't have a very impressive history. And when we repeat the testing, it comes back normal. So that's a, a, a very important point. And Sarah, would you like to take through how, how you approach somebody who's been referred in for a question of a bleeding disorder? Sure. And I want to emphasize the point you made that something I say frequently is please don't wait until you have an abnormal lab to send somebody to hematology. We are happy and eager to see patients with bleeding symptoms regardless of what their lab results are. And that's for a few different reasons. One, as you know very well, it's quite complicated to interpret these laboratory results. So sometimes a normal result may not actually appear normal to us when we take into account all of the other coexisting issues, such as whether they're on estrogen or whether they're pregnant at the time or whether they have an inflammatory disease or are anemic. Once we start doing our laboratory assessment, we are looking for entities such as von Willebrand disease. We're looking for defects in platelet function. As you mentioned earlier, we are looking for women who may be carriers of hemophilia, and there's definitely increasing understanding that carriers can often have bleeding symptoms as well. And that's another great example of a patient who may have quote, normal laboratory studies. Perhaps they have a normal factor eight level, but if they're in a family with hemophilia, we may need to do some more digging and they may be a hemophilia carrier who is symptomatic. It can also take quite a while to establish the diagnosis. So we never want a patient to wait to start treatment because we want to get their iron deficiency sorted out, as you mentioned. And we also want to, to slow down or stop their menstrual bleeding. So that's the other point I make often is um, I think sometimes referring providers think that they can't start treatment for heavy menstrual bleeding until the patient has seen the hematologist where we is, are always happy for the treatment to be started first. Do you often see patients come to you who haven't yet been started on therapy for their heavy menses? 
Absolutely. Um, And I think a challenge that you see, particularly when you're talking to younger girls and maybe with their parents, is when you start talking about hormonal treatment, they start thinking about contraception. But it is important that this is a hormonal therapy for the control of heavy bleeding. And if somebody uses as contraception, that can be an additional benefit, but it's not necessarily part of that treatment. What we're trying to do is reduce down the womb lining and um, by reducing that endometrial lining to reduce the heaviness of the flow by controlling that through hormonal means. I always emphasize that contraception is a side effect of the treatment, but that there are many uses for these medications, including heavy menstrual bleeding, acne, patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome. We are also using intrauterine devices more and more in young patients, and they are a great choice for, for women with bleeding disorders. And we at our hospital even have the capability to do these under sedation for girls who maybe haven't used tampons, are not sexually active, and are a little bit uncomfortable about the thought of having the device placed. Another key mistake that I see made is starting adolescents on very, very low doses of birth control pills. And what happens there is they are just going to break through bleed on those low doses. Sometimes I will see a family and they already think that nothing's going to work for them. And so we just talk about how there are so many different types of hormonal pills on the market with different dosing and that the issue was just that they were on too low a dose, not that these medications can't work for them. All these treatments take time to work and people should be reassessed over a period of time. And and when I advise someone to get an IUD, I advise them that it can take up to six months to see a benefit in terms of their uh, menstruation. So not to throw in the towel too early with that. So it's important that people's expectations are realistic and then that they're also followed up during that time period to make sure they improve. Of course, there's non-hormonal options as well, such as tranexamic acid. So that's also another option if people don't want to pursue hormones at that time. Um, And in some countries can be used with hormonal therapy as well. That's a great point. I think that tranexamic acid, which is what we typically use in the States, is a great first choice. And as we've alluded to, these are long, complex conversations about which hormonal therapy might be best for a particular conversation. So tranexamic acid is a great choice to just get a patient started on therapy. And then once they see the specialist, whether that's a hematologist or a gynecologist, they can dive in more deeply and see um, what other options options might be available. Tranexamic acid is nice because you only take it during the time that you're menstruating. So we advise our patients to start it when they start their menstrual bleeding and take for the first five days of their menses. So that can be very appealing to adolescents as well who may not be taking any other medications and who may have some concerns about having to take a daily contraceptive pill. Well, Michelle, this has been a great discussion today. I know this is a topic we're both passionate about, and I hope that through our conversation, we're helping to increase awareness in the patient community and the healthcare provider community about bleeding issues in women. I think as I reflect on our conversation, some of my key takeaways would be one, just how common heavy menstrual bleeding is. 
And if we're not seeing it in our practice, it's because we're not asking about it enough. And I hope the audience came away with a few key questions that they can work into their history, such as how many days are you bleeding? How many products are you using per day? Are you passing clots greater than the size of a quarter? And just having a few of those questions in your history toolkit can really help you get a good menstrual history. One of the other takeaways for me was the frequency of iron deficiency in this patient population and the importance of checking not just a hemoglobin, but a ferritin in our patients and understanding that a ferritin less than 15 is iron deficiency and that that alone can cause symptoms for patients. And then my final takeaway would be just the breadth of treatment options that are available for patients. There are many hormonal therapies that can be used and there are agents like tranexamic acid that are very well tolerated by patients and can be started quite quickly to help get a patient's bleeding under control while they are awaiting their diagnostic evaluation or their appointment with a specialist. Well, I think, Sarah, you really summarized all the therapeutics really nicely there and increasing our awareness. And I suppose from my side, in terms of recognition and recognition referral and diagnosis, if you see a woman who has heavy menstrual bleeding, you should be asking, have you had any problems with nosebleeds, bruising, any bleeds with any challenges? And if you're hearing yes to those questions, you need to be referring that person to a hematologist and starting the treatments just as Sarah has outlined. And I really want um, people to to be aware of the fact that you cannot rely on routine coagulation testing to exclude these bleeding disorders. They're complex, but no one will ever ask you to manage them. We're just asking for you to refer the patient in so they have the opportunity to reach a diagnosis and to avoid that lifelong um, problems with bleeding. So, Sarah, it's been uh, wonderful, as always, to talk about heavy menstrual bleeding and women and girls with bleeding disorders with you. Um, before we close, I would like to point the listeners to other episodes of this podcast series. We have some fantastic speakers. Professor Razan Abdul-Qadir and Dr. Rosaline Darn will be discussing the diagnosis of bleeding disorders of women and girls. And um, I will be back speaking with Deborah Pollard, one of our fantastic nurse specialists who specializes in bleeding disorders. And we'll go into the management and treatment of bleeding disorders in women. So the full series is going to be available on hemostasisconnect.info and also your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. This Hemostasis Connect podcast was brought to you by Courtoed Independent Medical Education. Please visit courtoed.com for more information.